If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9. And I hope you'll join us at Luke chapter 9. This morning we come to a story that is surely well known, but is probably not well understood. It's an important story in the New Testament, not as if there is an unimportant story, but uh, surely we can, we can say that there are others that, that have a more immediate and a more pressing um, in for us and for our lives, our understanding of God, and this is one of them. And in part we know that because it appears, one of the few stories that actually appears in all four Gospels. It's a, a miracle of Christ that shows up by all four writers. They all felt this is so significant, we must put this story in here. We must put this historical account of what Christ said and did in this retelling of the great gospel story itself. The question is, why is it so important? Why is it significant? Why did they think it was significant? And why is it still significant for us today? The answer is that it not just puts Jesus' power on display, but it helps make clear who he is and why he has come. So I invite you to follow along as we look to this text. Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 10. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of God this morning. Hear it and believe. Here we not only have a miracle of Jesus, but one that really gets to the very heart of who he is as the Savior of the world. Jesus comes as the Savior, not simply to bear the title of Savior, but to actually serve sinners as a Savior. When they come to him, here is what they find. They find themselves always satisfied, both body and soul. And as we think about that, we need to understand that even today, when we go to Christ, we will find ourselves fully satisfied as well. Jesus displays this reality for us in two ways this morning. First of all, he shows the priority of people. He shows the priority of people. And this really is is seen in, in three ways, three different vantage points, as it were. First, we see that he prioritized people over plans. Jesus prioritized people over plans. Listen again to how Luke sets the stage for this account of Jesus' life. He says, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now, where are they returning from? Well, if you were here last week or you've read this before, and if not, you can go back and read these verses this afternoon. You'll see that right before this, Jesus had sent out his disciples on this this kind of short-term mission trip, on this kind of uh, apprenticeship 
program where he invested in them power both to teach and to heal and sent them out on this trip. And now they've finished that trip. They've come back to Jesus and they're eager to tell him all that God had done. And notice what Jesus' plan is. Jesus' plan is to get away with the disciples, not only to help them process what they had seen take place, but also how that fit into the larger work that God was doing through Christ himself. But Luke said that when the crowds learned where they were going, they followed him. Now it was about four miles from direct sail from where Jesus and the disciples were headed to Bethsaida from this location and about only eight miles on foot. So it was, it was not very far to go and the crowds went. So Jesus and disciples set off the people, uh, that they could see, the people could see where they were headed and they began to walk up to meet Jesus. And though Jesus' plan is to go to Bethsaida, to go to this desolate place where you're not near a village, uh, it's out in the middle of nowhere and they can kind of have some peace and quiet and he can teach and instruct his disciples. Very quickly, all of the people show up and therefore his plans are scuttled by the appearance of these people. What we'll see in just a minute is though that people that Jesus had these plans, he prioritized people over them. But notice also, he also prioritized people over uh, fatigue, people despite fatigue. This retreat that Jesus was planning wasn't just about teaching. No, it was about that. It was also about rest. Remember that these disciples were given very few provisions. They were told, go, rely on people uh what they will give you, what they will provide for you, how they will support you. And remember, there was an urgency to this task. If you go to a village and they don't welcome you, they don't accept your message, then just move on. Because right now it's about getting out there and spreading the news as quickly as possible. So there would have been a sense of urgency. Whenever there's a sense of urgency, if any of you have ever been urgent on a task, whether it is mental or whether it is physical, whether it is uh, uh, planning your, your paper for class to get it turned in, your homework assignment or whatever it is, or whether it's putting a new roof on your house before the rains come, you know that what follows is weariness, tiredness. And so what you need is rest and refreshment. And this is what Jesus is intending. In fact, when Luke gives his account of this, part of the reason why they leave initially and go to Bethsaida, we were told, is that the crowds are, are so much coming to Jesus and around the disciples that they can't even take a break to stop and eat. They can't even, they can't even take a snack or have lunch. They're like, Jesus is like, come on, let's, just, let's go. Let's, let, let's get out of here. We need to go off and we need to spend time together. They're hungry. They're tired. They want to get away to get some rest, but they can't because the crowds show back up. And you're saying Jesus could have easily sent them away. Jesus could have said, no, not now. You need, you need, to, you need to go home. He could have told his disciples, back in the boat. Let's go. We're out of here. We're going somewhere else. Then he didn't do that, did he? No, he said, essentially, we can rest later. There are people here, we need to serve them. Jesus had his plans, he and the disciples needed rest, but in this case, he put the priority on people. He didn't send them away, but began to preach and to teach and to heal. And notice how he did that. Notice how he did that. He prioritized people with joy. He prioritized people with joy. Don't skip over this. Verse 11, Jesus welcomed them. He welcomed them. This means he wasn't regretting their appearance. He wasn't just going through the motions of being nice and teaching and preaching and being patient. He wasn't grumbling to himself or to his disciples about all of these needy people here. No, he served them with joy. He was glad to see them. Why? Because this is the reason for which he came. 
He came to serve sinners by being their savior to the glory of his father in heaven. So when the people came, he had compassion on them, even though it wasn't convenient for him. Nevertheless, he could take joy in serving them despite being tired, despite being hungry, despite having other plans. Because, as we might say today, Jesus wasn't just about the paycheck. He wasn't just about the reputation of being the Messiah. He was the Messiah. He was in it for the people, and the people needed a Savior. Now, brothers and sisters, let's just be completely honest for a minute. Let's be completely honest with ourselves, with one another, and acknowledge that Jesus pretty much shames us here in this passage. Because the very things that he doesn't worry about in his pursuit of focusing on these people are all the most common reasons why we ourselves fail to do ministry with people. I have my own plans. I'm feeling tired. And when I do have to serve, I won't do it with joy. Not without a little cheek, one person has said, I love ministry. I would love it more if it wasn't for all the people. Now we get the irony in that, of course, but we also feel the pain of truth in that, wouldn't it? Don't we? We would love to serve God more if it didn't mean being around all those people. All those people interfering with my plans, my ability to take a good nap. I'll never forget hearing Alistair Begg at a pastor's conference several years ago talking about both the, the work and the labor, but also the joys of pastoral ministry. He was talking to a group of pastors and he said, look, he said, you have to plan for your week. You have to, you have to carve out time in your schedule and make it a priority to, to pray, to study, to prepare. He says, you've got to make time for your family. He says, but here's what's going to happen. And some of you, he says, it's already happened. You have all of these great plans and then life happens. And someone gets sick and goes to the hospital. Someone gets sick and dies suddenly or is in an accident. There are people suddenly struggling. A marriage will fall apart and you've got to go and you've got to be there. And you've got to minister to them because that's part of your calling. But, but suddenly it's Friday night or it's Saturday morning. You realize I've got nothing to say on Sunday. And that's also part of your ministry. He says, what, what do you do? And he says, you get up before the sun. He says, you, you get up before the rooster crows and you get to work. Why? He says, because you love it. Because you love it. This is, this is your calling and therefore you take delight in doing this work. Even when it means your plans don't go the way you want it. Even when it means you're not going to get the sleep that you want it. You love preaching Christ. You take joy in preaching Christ and preparing to do that. Because we believe that Jesus was telling the truth when he said, If I am lifted up, God will draw all men to me. That is for saving faith. It doesn't mean that we're always that way. But how could that thought not give us joy? The thought that ministering to other people will bring them closer to Christ. How could that not be a motivation for us to serve like Jesus? It doesn't mean that we will never get upset at the interruptions to our normal life, but by God's grace, those times should be few. Even still, Jesus models this perfectly, doesn't it? So no one can say, well, you know, I would go to Jesus, but I'm not sure he wants me. I've done some awfully bad things. I'm I'm, I'm not sure he has time for me. Nonsense. Jesus ready stands to welcome everyone. No matter how sinful, no matter how messed up you may feel like you are, he stands with joy saying, come to me. Come to me. And that's not only encouraging for us 
as sinners, but that should be an example to us. Because just as Jesus was modeling ministry for his disciples, so we today who are his disciples, who are concerned for making disciples, we should see that people are a priority. People are the priority. Sometimes our plans, our rest, these things need to take a back seat to the people that are around us, the church that needs to be edified and the loss that needs to be evangelized. This is the priority of people that Jesus displayed. It was a, This is exactly who he was as Savior. He came for people, people like you and people like me. Notice also that we also see the power of provision in Jesus' actions here. The power of provision What does he provide? First, he provides God's word. He provides God's word. A few weeks ago, I was reading a a Christian book on leadership, and one of the, the points the author was making is that the leader always has the same message. That when he gets up to speak, he's always going to say essentially the same thing. And and by way of illustration, he talked about President Ronald Reagan. And if you're at all into politics, you will know that no one talks about Reagan's speeches. It was Reagan's speech. It was He was going to give the speech. Because even though he had a different opening illustration, he had a different middle illustration, and he may have applied it slightly differently, Reagan essentially had one speech. It was the three same points over and over and over again. And what I find incredibly interesting is that that is essentially what we see in Jesus' ministry. Now, now first of all, do not misunderstand. I'm not saying that Jesus is a Republican, okay? Don't go out here and, and, and tweak that or something. I'm not saying that, that G, Reagan is like Jesus. I'm not, that's not the point. My point is simply saying that Jesus is a man who sings only one song. In the Gospels, he is all about the kingdom of God. And in every opportunity, in every situation, the thing that we see him doing is preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. He is showing how the promises made long ago, promises cherished by the covenant people of Israel, were being fulfilled in his life and ministry. The kingdom of God was here, and he is being, it's being proclaimed through him. Jesus and his disciples are trying to get away for a little retreat to rest and review. And what, what just happened on this mission trip, the clouds are suddenly there. Jesus, they want him. They want Jesus. The crowds are there for him. And Jesus gives himself to them. He's there to serve them. But notice how he does it. Yes, he brings healing. He, 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 he provides. We'll see in a minute. But before that, what does he do? He spoke to them, verse 11. He spoke to them of the kingdom of God. And when you stop and think about it, that is, that is absolutely amazing. It is astonishing. Not because it's unfamiliar. We just said that Jesus did it all the time, didn't we? In fact, over 40 times in loose gospel is the kingdom of God on the lips of Jesus. Think about that. 40 times in 24 chapters. That seems like it may have been an important thing for Jesus. But think about how shocking that is. That always... Always, his primary focus is preaching and teaching the Word of God. Think about where he's living, when he's living. There would have been needs all around him. Yes, he healed people, but he didn't heal everyone. I mean, he's only one man in one little part of the world at one city at a time. Not everyone's getting healed. And even those rare times that he exercised the divine prerogative of omnipresence and healed people not right before him. Again, those times were few. When he could have just said, the whole world, heal of every sin, heal of every sickness, heal of every disease. 
But he didn't do that, did he? Many of the people that he encountered were poor. They could have used an abundance of crops. They could have used a filled storehouse. There's so much physical need in front of him. But Jesus didn't make everyone rich. Jesus didn't fill all the storehouses. He didn't cause crops to explode every time. Instead, what did he do every time? He preached and he taught the word of God. I think if Jesus were alive today on this very point, there would be people that would condemn him for this very thing. We live in a culture that it is so often assumed that if you are not giving food to the poor or medicine to the sick, then you are not at all engaged in Christian life and ministry. Some will even say you're not engaged in gospel ministry. And again, do not misunderstand me. We should be involved in those things. We are involved in those things. But those things can never be the priority of what we do because they're not the priority of what Jesus does. And that's important to understand for two reasons. First of all, we need to see this because it's the word of God that we ourselves need the most. This last Friday was Matthew Henry's birthday. Some of you know him, some of you don't. He was a Puritan minister. He lived at the end of the 1600s and the beginning of the 1700s. And he's probably most famous for two things. One, he says commentary on the entire Bible. And secondly, it's a book on prayer. And what's interesting is that while he's plowing through, he's, he knows his time is short. He's getting increasingly uh, more ill as the days go on. And he is furiously dictating and writing to get this commentary on the whole Bible out. As, uh, and it wasn't just a, a scholarly thing to sit on pastor shelves. It was meant to be in the home of every Christian to be read devotionally together. They might understand God's word and profit from it. But he stops this project and he says, you know, there's something even more important that I need to get done before I die. And that is a book on prayer. Because he saw it as the great need of the time. It's still a great need of the time. And you know what he essentially says in that book on prayer? Pray the Bible. Pray the Bible. Take God's word, take the promises of God and turn them back into pleas for help. So here's what Henry knew. What Jesus taught, spiritual life comes from the word of God. Our growth in holiness comes by hearing the word of God. Comfort and sorrow comes from hearing and believing the word of God. In fact, faith itself comes from hearing the word, Paul says. What specifically? The word of Christ. Here's the reality. Our greatest need is Christ. And that need is met. Christ's presence is made known. His power is put on display when we encounter him through God's word. Secondly, we need to see that why this priority is so important because we should see it as an emphasis as a pattern for our own lives and ministry. In just a few chapters, we're going to see Jesus give a gentle chastening to Martha. And it's not because she was worried about being a good host or serving her guests. Those are, those are good things. But he reminds her that that good ministry pushed out the only needed thing, which was sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing the word of God. So here is the emphasis on Jesus' ministry, and it should be the emphasis on our ministry as well. Not just as a church body, but as individuals. Our primary calling, our primary ministry as Christ's people should be telling others of Christ through the Word. It might be one verse at a time as we encourage someone down the hallway this morning. It might be a one-to-one Bible study that would help lead someone to salvation, as some of you are actually doing now. It might be just sitting down with our kids for a time of family devotions. But let this be the priority of our lives as we live in service to God, providing God's word to those in need. 
John Bunyan once said of prayer, we can do more than pray after we have prayed, but we cannot do more than pray until we have prayed. You get that? Well, I'm no Bunyan, but let me be so bold as to offer a companion quote when it comes to ministry. You can do no more than share the word. Uh, you can you can do more than share the word after you have shared the word, but you cannot do more than share the word until you have shared the word. Jesus provided God's word to needy people, but he didn't stop there. He also provides generous satisfaction. Generous satisfaction. Jesus has been teaching the crowds, and this wasn't like some short little thing. I mean, Jesus is here speaking for hours. You get that, right? That, 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 that's the reason why the disciples are like, dude, the sun is going down, and we've got to get these people out of here, right? So, so, so the crowds come to Jesus. They say, hey, teach us the word. He says, fine, sit down. Here we go. And, and, and hour after hour, he goes on. And, and, you know, I could say something about some of you being fearful that I would follow that example of Jesus, but we won't, we won't do that at least on Sunday mornings, okay? The day is gone, and I love how Luke describes it is wearing away. And here's what he says. The twelve came and said to Jesus, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Now, if the disciples are real people, and we know that they are, then they are probably complicated like real people. Specifically, their motivations are complex like real people. So on the one hand, we can say, look at the disciples. See how concerned they are for the crowds. They know that these people have no food. It's going to take a while to get there. And so they're showing with administrative mindsets, we we have to wrap this up because these people are hungry. They need to go before it gets dark. But they're people. They're human. And so on another level, we can say, see how hungry the disciples are. Again, remember the context. Mark has told us that the reason why they left in the first place was because they were hungry and they didn't have time to stop and eat because there were so many people. So Jesus said, well, let's go. We'll have time to rest, to eat, and to do the debrief. And now they show up in Bethsaida, the crowd's there, and they can't do the rest. They can't get food. They can't do the debrief. And now suddenly the disciples' guts are growling. And they're like, come on, Jesus, lead these people away so we, uh, I mean, they can get something to eat. I love Jesus' response here. He just looks at them and says, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Now, I love that, but it's also a bit confusing, right? We have to ask ourselves, did he really expect that they would provide him something to eat? Maybe. Well, again, what have they just done? What, what were verses 1 through 9 all about? He's given them authority to go and to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. Maybe they had the authority in this moment to feed the crowds miraculously even as he would. Maybe they did, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is that the disciples failed the tests that Jesus presents to them here. He says, you give them something to eat. And what do they say? We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. The disciples are most incredulous. Why? Well, Luke tells us the idea is so absurd to them for there was about 5,000 men. Now, we often have this labeled, sometimes even in our Bibles, like Jesus feeding the 5,000. You understand there's not just 5,000 people there. 
When Luke and the Gospel writers say 5,000 men, they don't just mean there's literally a men's retreat going on here, a men's conference. No, it's a, it's a patriarchal society where men were the heads of households, where they were the primary breadwinners. And therefore, the accounting, the census that's taken place is based on the number of men that are in that group. If each of them has a wife and at least one kid, this could be as big as 15,000 people here in this group. Maybe they have more than one kid. Maybe they're good, pious Jews and they want to, they want to produce 12 tribes. Now those numbers are starting to rise. The point is that disciples are looking out of this crowd of thousands saying, what do you think we're going to buy food for all these people? What do you expect us to do here? Come on. And here's exactly how they failed the test. They failed the test because as Phil Riken puts it, they were acting like men without a God. Even if they did not have the power, even if they did not themselves have the authority to provide the food, surely they knew who was standing with them. Surely they knew who was asking them to provide for the food. Was this not Jesus who had just calmed the storms with a word? Who had just raised a little girl from the dead? Was he not the anointed of God, the Almighty, who had defeated the false gods of Egypt? Who had parted the Red Sea and had given manna in the wilderness? How could they not say to Jesus, we can't provide for all these people, but you can. But you can. Notice where they are. Verse 12, they are in a desolate place. Notice what they need. Food. Notice what they're doing. Complaining. What should that remind you of? The exodus. It should remind you of the exodus. When God rescued his people from Egypt and began bringing them to the promised land, before they got there, they go through the desolate place. They go through the wilderness. And even though they'd seen this amazing, miraculous thing, all of these wonders, these mighty acts of salvation that God has done, the first thing they do is complain because they don't have full bellies. In fact, in one of the, one of the verses, you just think, how could that, how could that actually happen? They, they say, Maybe we should go back to Egypt. I mean, this is the group that was calling out, begging, pleading for salvation from Egypt and slavery there. And now they're saying, well, you know, maybe we should go back to Egypt. In fact, the parallel here between the, one, the grumbling in the wilderness because of no bread and what's going on here is so strong, the people themselves get it. Luke ends the story and moves on, but, but John keeps us there for a while in John chapter 6. And he tells us that Jesus, after he performs this miracle, he blesses the people and he leaves. And they follow him again and they show up and they basically say, hey, where's the free food again? Do, do that miracle with the bread again. That, that was pretty awesome. And you know what their argument is? Their rationale, their basis for asking this? Hey, Moses gave manna in the wilderness. What are you going to do, Jesus? I mean, you're going to come on, you're the Messiah, right? I mean, surely if Moses gave him bread, we can have bread too. The same test the 12 tribes face in the wilderness is the same test the 12 disciples face in the wilderness. And they fail just like Israel did. They fail to remember the mighty works of God. They fail to trust Him to provide for their needs. All they can see is the problem. Look at all these people. What are we going to do, God? This is nothing for God. This is nothing for Him. Nothing but they simply can't get their eyes off themselves and their circumstances. They fail the test, but Jesus doesn't fail to meet their need. He tells the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50, and they did so, and had them sit down. 
And taking five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples who sat before the crowd. The verb in verse 16 is present active, meaning Jesus kept breaking the loaves and giving to the disciples. This was not as some claim that, you know, first of all, we know that there was more than just men there because in the other accounts we're told that the disciples came up with this bread and fish because it was a kid's sack lunch. And he's like, you know, anybody got any food? And one, one little kid, I do. You know, whatever it was. And, and they're like, this is all we got, you know. And, 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 and so... This is not this moment where, as some liberal scholars were, were saying, who don't believe in the truth of the Bible, that this little, this little kid, you know, uh, hands over the food and they'll go, oh, we should share with one another too. So they pull out the food hidden and start handing out to poor people. That's not what happens. And frankly, that's demeaning to the glory of Christ here. No, what, what you have is Jesus praying this blessing over the food and then he starts breaking it. And he breaks the bed, bread and he hands them a loaf. And they're like, loaf, 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 loaf. Loaf. And you just get this picture of Jesus continually breaking this bread and breaking this bread and breaking this bread. And miraculously, he is, he is, he is taking nothing, just as he did in Genesis 1. He is taking absolutely nothing and he is bringing together bread for the crowds. He is breaking fish into and creating out of nothing fish for the crowds. We get this glimpse of the glory of God and the power of Christ, not just to feed, but to satisfy the people. That's what Luke says in verse 17. They all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. In other words, hey guys, if you didn't get it before, I cannot just meet your needs. I can go on meeting your needs forever. Here's the leftovers that you get to haul away. And I love what Matthew Henry says in his commentary here. Those whom Christ feeds, he fills. To whom he gives, he gives enough. He replenishes every hungry soul and abundantly satisfies it. Jesus provides bread and fish, but in doing so, he's telling us something more than just about bread and fish. Again, when the crowds in John are are saying, give us the manna, give us the manna, just like Moses, give us some bread. Jesus, you almost get the sense he's kind of like, guys, it's not about the bread. It's never just about the bread. It's not about having food in your stomachs. It is about God who provides. It's not just about the bread. So he says to them, he makes it clear. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's what Jesus says is the point of the miracle. That was the point of the manna in the wilderness. And it's the point of him breaking the bread with the loaves and the fish. That's the point for us this morning. Jesus, Jesus, Luke says, is the savior of the world. And so Jesus is saying, come to me and be satisfied because I will give you more than enough. Because of the sinfulness of our hearts, our, our relationship with God is broken. And therefore we have an ever-increasing appetite for sin. The, the more we taste it, the more that we want it. But the sad reality is, the more and more we feast on sin, the more and more hollow and empty we feel in our lives. All the time. And, and, and so it's very much like a, a, a man who who is alone out in the Pacific Ocean, perhaps on a boat, and he has absolutely no water to drink. The sun is scorching, and he's looking around at all this blue, crystal clear water, thinking, this is, this is going to be great. And so he begins drinking and drinking and drinking, but the more that he drinks, 
because of all of the salt, the more thirsty he gets. And so the more thirsty he gets, the more he begins to drink, and he drinks, drinks, until he kills himself with the salt water. Sin is the same way. We think, this is what I want. This is what will satisfy this longing in my heart. And so we, we eat, and we eat, and we eat, and what we find is that sin expanding its corruption like a cancer through our soul. So we are left, at the end of the day, hollow and empty and void of any joy or happiness or satisfaction. And Jesus is saying, you come to me. Don't go to sin. Don't go to your idols. You come to me and your soul will be satisfied. Your soul will be satisfied. Remember what God said to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah? He says, you have created two. You you, you have done two big sins. Here's what you've done. First of all, you've rejected me as the fountain of living water. But secondly, you've tried to go out and dig wells for yourself. And they're broken and they're empty and you're drinking sand. And Jesus is saying the same thing. He says, left to yourself, you are going to thirst and you are going to hunger and you're going to die. Not just physically, but spiritually. But come to me and you're never going to be thirsty again. Come to me, you're never going to be hungry again because I am the fountain of living water. I am, I am the bread of life. You come and your soul finds satisfaction. That, that, that spiritual, restless desire, that, that, that need to be satiated, to be satisfied. You can never seem to understand, well, I'm doing all of these good things. I'm pursuing philosophy and religion, and I've got family, but I, I never feel satisfied. I always feel restless. It's because you don't have Jesus. But Jesus stands ready. He says, come on. Come on, come to me, believe in me, trust in me, and you will not go away hungry. You will not go away thirsty. Your soul will be satisfied. That's what Jesus is saying. And it's his power that shows he's able to make good on that claim. Jesus will make clear that as the Savior, he makes sinners the priority by going to the cross for them. He forgoes comfort and ease, endures humility by dying as a sacrifice for sins for others. And he reveals the power of God by rising from the dead. The Romans kill him. They put him in a tomb. They put Caesar's seal on it. And it means nothing to Jesus. Because though he tastes death, the fullness of death under God's wrath for everyone, he comes back to life. Death cannot hold him. And the message we have is that if Jesus can just casually provide food for thousands to the point that there's leftovers, if he can overcome even death itself, then surely he can fulfill our needs. Not just our physical needs, but all of our spiritual needs as well. Surely He can give you forgiveness of sins and satisfy the deepest longings of your heart and mind by bringing you into a right relationship with God. So this morning, this is the call. This is the call to go to Jesus. Whether you've been saved practically all of your life, or whether you're here for the first time realizing, I know about Jesus, I know about God, I know about the loaves and the fish, but I don't know Jesus. It's about going to Him, trusting Him, and finding satisfaction for our lives. Father, may we do that this morning. May we go to Jesus trusting that He is the Savior of the world, that He is the one who can provide for our needs, that He is the only thing that we need. Because at the end of the day, God, Though you do provide for our needs, though you do provide our daily bread, God, the food that we are about to go, we can rightly say, has come from your hand. Whether it's been 
the physical health that we have had to go and to work a job and therefore earn money to buy these things that you have allowed farmers to grow? Or whether, Father, we've shown up empty-handed and we're going to eat from the generosity of others today. God, it's all come from you. But, Father, there are times when you withdraw that physical provision. Are we going to lose faith at that moment? No. Because we have Christ. And He is all that we need in this life and the next. God, may we understand that, God. More than that, may we believe it. May we feel it in the depths of our soul. And therefore cling to Him in all things. God, we ask this in His name. Amen.